Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. Uh, thank you for joining the show. Uh, we are streaming on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube simultaneously. And uh, you can, since we are live, comment uh, on uh, each of them. And if your comments are relevant and uh, interesting, I will be able to bring them in and uh, we will answer uh, live or make our own uh, comments back to you. It, you can also subscribe to the channel on YouTube, of course, and uh, be alerted when we have uh, new uh, shows uh, scheduled. Uh, and uh, you can also join our Discord uh, channel where we are uh, continuing the conversations around the numerous themes that uh, are um, addressed on Searching for the Question Live. Uh, if you uh, want, you can also suggest uh, new guests and vote on those uh, suggested by others. And uh, finally, uh, if you uh, appreciate the content that uh, I create together with my team, you are more than welcome to become a fan, a supporter, a sponsor, or a benefactor on uh, patreon.com slash David Orban uh, with the various tiers uh, that are available uh, and at your disposal. So, uh, in this uh, episode, we are going to uh, talk about uh, startup societies, special economic zones. Uh, in general, uh, how competition is actually moving to the level of countries in a very new way uh, than what uh, used to be the case maybe 100 years ago, where the only tool available would have been uh, a war uh, to conquer a given territory, and that would be it. Uh, either you won and then you competed out the other guy or you lost and then uh, your bet uh, didn't work out. And I guess you went back to the drawing board like Germany did after the first attempt uh, to try a second time. That didn't work either back then. Uh, and uh, to, to um, have this conversation, uh, uh, we have a wonderful guest, uh, uh, Joe McKinney, uh, who is uh, the CEO and co-founder of the uh, Startup Societies Foundation, uh, as well as uh, the CEO of uh, Nuance Network. Um, the first uh, is a nonprofit that uh, uh, is uh, analyzing how startup societies and special economic zones can, can form. And the second uh, is a for-profit uh, that uh, provides consultation around these uh, as well as in uh, e-governance uh, applications. So uh, uh, welcome, Joseph, to um, Searching for the Question Live. Hey, David, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you very much. So uh, as we were starting, uh, I, I told you that I like to uh, show uh, to our viewers uh, the places that we touch. Uh, a few hours ago, we were live uh, with uh, a guest, uh, um, from Taipei, Taiwan, uh, which is right here uh, in uh, the South uh, China Sea. I didn't even realize that it was so close to the Philippines. Uh, I thought it was farther up north, but no. Um, and uh, right now uh, we are uh, talking with you and you are in Barranquilla uh, in uh, Colombia. Right around the world. There you go. And 
and and you are uh, in a tropical uh, location as well, right? How how is the weather uh, over there? Oh, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, it, you know, just make sure you gotta have a good air conditioner at all times. But uh, it's it's absolutely beautiful here in Barranquilla. And and uh, do you go swimming in the sea uh, often? It's uh, very close. Yeah, uh, so there's some. There's some better beaches in nearby uh, cities like Cartagena and Santa Marta. Um, and uh, we probably would have gone to them a lot more, but uh, I moved here uh, around in February and uh, right when uh, the lockdowns happened. So I haven't had a chance yet. And, and how is uh, that going? Um, uh, how is the pandemic being handled by Colombia? And um, how is it, uh, how, how are you coping? So uh, me personally, my life hasn't really changed because I work remotely. I'm, I'm kind of a digital hermit. Um, but uh, Colombia has been an interesting case. Um, it's actually one of the most regulated uh, countries in terms of COVID-19. Uh, we're allowed to go out once a week, uh, depending on the last digit of our uh, ID number. And that used to be even less. It was about two or three weeks. Some days there's just complete lockdown of everything. Um, and uh, it's... It hasn't been tremendously helpful. Uh, cases have gone exponential. Um, so that's kind of situation, but we're fine. I mean, uh, prior to this, we, we didn't go out very frequently anyways. We kind of live on the internet, so it's not an issue. And, uh, and is it because even though the, uh, uh, the imposition by the government uh, was theoretically strict, compliance uh, was an issue? Uh, I see that... Uh, 77,000 cases uh, on a population that I don't know how big is uh, Colombia. Um, I could Google it right away. Uh, do you do you remember the number? Uh, not off the top of my head, but yeah, um, let, me, let me check it out. Uh, uh, let, let's go here uh, as well. Uh, Colombia population. Uh, it's about 50 million. 50 million. So. Uh, so uh, on a per million uh, uh, basis, uh, the number of infections is uh, is high, uh, even though not as high as in some other countries, uh, and the number of deaths. Uh, so do you know if the issue was uh, indeed lack of compliance? Uh, yes. I mean, so it's definitely not lack of enforcement because they definitely crack down um, when they can. But, you know, the issue is that a lot of people, uh, they can't live that way. They, they're not like... I who's you know lives in a pre-privileged position uh, where I can work remotely on my computer. A lot of people work in the informal economy. They have to work outside, um, and also just the culture. It's it's about being outside, being around your neighbors. Um, so it generally speaking, they've been flaunting it. That's not to say the government hasn't been taking some measures uh, to to reduce it. It just hasn't been really enforceable. And and um, um, what is uh, the the level of um... Uh, the social safety net, because uh, in those countries where uh, the, the 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 personal savings or the household uh, savings are are not enough, of course, uh, either you go hungry, uh, or you go out, or uh, the government helps you. So, um, uh, what um, what is the situation with regards to that in Colombia? It's it's a pittance. Uh, it, it's it's really not. Uh, what's necessary in order to survive? Um, it's 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 pretty frightening to be completely honest. So people like a like there's avocado sellers that are out every single day, or or cheese sellers, and they were completely gone before. But even though there's lockdown, every single day we hear 
the calls for avocados all the time because they need to work to survive. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there were other guests uh, uh, on uh, searching for the question live uh, uh, from uh, India or South Africa, and and that is indeed the case in in many many other places in the world uh, where people earn the money that they need in order to eat the next day or even pay rent next day or the night the the, the very night, and so if they do nothing because they are locked down. Uh, they uh, cannot uh, have a shelter anymore, uh, and it is uh, it is really a, a tragic situation for uh, for a lot of people. Um, and uh, what uh, made you uh, choose uh, Colombia uh, before the pandemic? Uh, some people um, ended up, uh, for example, in New Zealand, and they were like, "We thought we came here because it was one of the safest places on the planet." but we didn't realize it would be come true to this degree so fast. Yeah, so the, the reason I'm here is uh, I, I moved here with, uh, with my girlfriend, Dr. Meza Garcia, who's actually also an expert in the Startup Society space. Uh, she has a consultancy company or a business development company for floating developments and floating startup societies. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, she she's available and would like to join. Uh, uh, we can share with her the the URL and she can pop in. Well, uh, Natalie, if you're hearing and you want to join the call, uh, no pressure, but you're you're invited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, she she's from Barranquilla, and <laughs> there she is. She's she's saying hi. Do you want to just? We could give you the link, or you could just say hi briefly. Right uh, I think it, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, she's gonna finish an email real quick, but then she'll join us. Okay, uh, but, and, and then, and then uh, my preference would be uh, rather than the two of you sharing yeah. the tiny space on the same yeah. camera, uh, for her to to hop in uh, from another location. Yeah, she has a computer in another room. She'll join via that. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, she she's a Beta Kenyatta. She's originally from here, um, and she uh, she finished her PhD in in uh, at Warwick University. Um, and uh, she wanted to return here and take all the information about good governance and floating developments and you know help her country. And there's a lot of opportunities here. Um, this place actually is very known for four zones. Um, there's a there's a special economic zone framework here, and it's it's uh, Colombian zones are pretty well rated. Um, and in fact, Barranquilla specifically has always been known as a port city. Uh, at the beginning of the century of the 20th century, uh, it was called the Golden Door to Latin America, especially Colombia. Uh, and the name's still kind of stuck, and there's still a lot of zones here, uh, and hopefully they're going to create a new zone framework, and they're going to attract even more developments uh, here in Barranquilla. So, so let's take a step back and um, uh, tell me uh, first, what are special economic zones, and then how did you uh, start to be interested in them? Sure. Uh, so a special economic zone is an area within a host jurisdiction that has uh, different policies or laws. Um, this could be something as banal as, uh, as, as tariff reductions uh, or, or uh, streamlined customs procedures, but it could also be in other taxes. Um, it could also be more interesting and have different regulatory codes for, for different sectors or, or different technologies. And the most interesting types of policies are having different legal systems that are based on best practices that attract uh, businesses and tenants and also there's a, a broad of uh, residential uh, incentives and reason i got interested in them is because of i came from a a a, uh, a free market mentality um in my more dogmatic era 
um, and I really wanted to make something happen, but I realized that it wasn't really possible on the electoral scale. So I looked at entrepreneurship and, uh, and different projects, and I started researching uh, these, these types of projects, that there was these new jurisdictions, and that they were actually happening all over the world. Um, and I realized that this was an avenue of applying the startup methodology of starting small and scaling, but for policies. And um, I thought it was just a bunch of crazy libertarian experiments, but they're actually widespread all around the world. There's 5,400 around the world. They indirectly make up hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of jobs uh, um, around the world and hundreds of millions in, in, in indirect jobs. And at least 1% of all global trade is through special economic zones. Um, and they make up some of the biggest cities in the world, like Shenzhen or Dubai. Oh, sorry, exactly. if you have a question. As, a, as, an, as an example, to make it concrete, I would, I would really uh, cite, uh, for example, Shenzhen, yeah. uh, because it is in an totally unexpected source uh, in terms of a of an authoritarian central government that has been able to realize that it was in their interest to run an economic experiment uh, which was hugely influential uh, and and kind of infected uh, with its own policies the remainder of its host country so we are talking about uh, uh, Shenzhen in China and the rest of China Yes, and it was implemented for some of the same reasons that I got interested in SECs in the first place. Um, existing nation states are so captured by special interest and momentum that they can't make large scale reforms. So what China did after the Great Leap Forward and they had tremendous famine is they knew they needed to have reform, but they couldn't do it over a large scale. So they, they, they realized that some of these, uh, these business people in China were trying to make reforms on a local level, and then they sort of endorsed those projects. And uh, Shenzhen was one of the first of those projects uh, to set up its own laws and legal system that was conducive to trade and investment, et cetera. Um, and it started with a, a, a fishing village of 30,000 people and now has a population of 18 million and a gross domestic product equivalent to Ireland, Portugal, or Vietnam. Um, so that's a miracle. And now there are, uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of special economic zones in China right now. And uh, uh, and so, uh, what 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 is the starting point? Is that uh, you believe that the kind of experimentation that is possible in the special economic zones is necessary in order to further human development and uh, and and uh, degrees of freedom that otherwise wouldn't be available. Exactly. Uh, we think it unlocks a potential that, that is latent in these areas. And you see that in Dubai, and you see that in China. Sorry, just as a side note, uh, Natalie is, is, uh, is ready for the call. So if you have a, a link no, no, that we can send. Same link. Uh, I don't have her email. So if I can you send can that copy the URL from the top and, and just send it to her through whatever means, that's Perfect. it. And and, uh, and and Francisco is going to be very happy because uh, he has been clamoring for Natalie to come in. Oh, really? Yeah. I, awesome. I, I have no idea who Francisco is, of course. Oh, hey, Francisco. He's the fan. <laughs> awesome. Okay, yeah, sending that right now. Okay. Yeah, but to answer your question, yeah, there's just barriers that uh, nation states put in the way um, in the policy side, that what unleash it can be absolutely amazing. And like another example is, is uh, Dubai. 
So Dubai um, was extraordinarily dependent on uh, oil revenues to get by. And you, you see these, these famous pictures of Dubai as just this absolute desert. Um, but what you don't see is that it formed dozens of different special economic zones within that small area. One of them was uh, the Dubai International Financial Center, which is on the cutting edge of SEZs around the world. It has its own independent legal system that's built into the constitution of both Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Um, it has its own regulatory code, taxation system, and is, ru is run very similar to a private corporation. You can even see their chief executive officers on Crunchbase. You can see their revenues. They report all of this very regularly every single year, like a company. Oh, oh, oh I, I want to bring that up. So if I go to Crunchbase and I go like the Dubai CEO, that will be... Uh, the, the Dubai first. International Financial Center. Okay, and 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 this entity, uh, sorry, for some reason it didn't come up. Well, maybe Dubai, it's because it's the British uh, spelling. Uh, not the uh, Dubai, not the World Trade Center, right? Right. Is that it? Yeah, uh, th that should be. It. Let me see. There's... Yeah, right here. I, I have it right here. I can send it on the private chat. Okay. Okay. And it calls itself a financial services company. And and uh, so that has uh, um, that has um, a, an ability to uh, uh, to um, operate not only in terms of uh, uh, economic economic policy, but also. Uh, it 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 properly manages the lives of 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 the people in the area, right? Well, yeah, it leases out land to developers to create uh, residences and what have you. Hey, Hello, Natalie. Hello. Welcome. I'm sorry to <laughs> photobomb your uh, podcast, your live. No, 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 absolutely. You are you are totally welcome, and <laughs> and, and thank you very much for being so flexible. Uh, and and uh, I uh, will let uh, <laughs> Joe finish uh, to talk about uh, Dubai a little bit, and then we will go and and listen to your uh, specialty around uh, um, floating uh, jurisdictions instead, which is absolutely fascinating. So please, Joe. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, you want me to continue? You said, or what? Yes, you please, please finish. Finish about Dubai. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it's on the cutting edge. It's run like a private company. It has its own legal system that can be updated and it updates it to its uh, its court system website. We even had some of the people that helped found the legal system at our recent uh, virtual event. Um, and uh, it, the legal system is based on uh, best practices in Welsh and English common law. And, every, you know, lawyers are very familiar with that system. It's used all around the world. Regrettably, that's because of uh, a lot of colonialism, but uh, the thing that makes it interesting for a lot of investors is that they're very familiar with it, so they can port over a lot of their understanding with British law and able to apply it there. And one of the things that made it so interesting for a lot of people is that in that area they have uh, they have laws against usury. You know, Islamic finance um, prohibits usury, and what the Dubai International Financial Center is provides a small little haven where people can provide uh, interest loans. Um, in order to to finance things in the Middle East. 
So it's kind of like a special economic zone for uh, uh, for for interest on loans. So it does other things as well. Fascinating. Um, so uh, Natalie, um, as a surprise guest, <laughs> I, I I I am very curious about uh, your background. To start with, a little bit, uh, uh, tell us uh, about yourself. Um, um you 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 are uh, you were born in colombia as i understand right and and then you uh, just completed your phd joseph was telling us that tell uh, tell us about uh, your your trajectory how did you arrive to do the kind of studies that you that you did awesome so first thank you very much for having me impromptu here i was really enjoying listening to joe's interview from the from my office so yeah, I was born in Colombia and I've just finished my PhD in the UK at the University of Warwick. I was studying the floating island project in French Polynesia, which was a case to build a floating special economic zone in the territorial waters of French Polynesia. While I was doing my PhD studying this project, I, was, I had two hats. So I was also the spokesperson internationally of the company building the floating island project. So I had kind of two conflicting hats in that sense. I didn't have any jurisdiction in French Polynesia. My outreach was just international. And right now I'm the CEO of CIFIA, which is a business development company for floating projects, where I, a, my approach to floating developments with special regulations is very much in a way, the contrary of what I what I saw in the project that I was involved with in French Polynesia. So the project lacked a lot of uh, true, honest, local stakeholder engagement. It also didn't really have a business plan that justified why floating or why special regulations in the first place. And it wasn't really catered towards the local community. So, uh, so, uh, it, it just, it has some flaws and I learned a lot by being in it. And I do believe and I do see the benefit if done correctly of localizing. Yeah. Could you repeat, uh, uh, could you spell uh, the, the name of the latest project that you mentioned that you just uh, oh, My company. Yes. Sophia, like this. Uh, the name, uh, so Sophia is knowledge in... Uh, in Greek and sea, ocean, so Sophia. It started as a consulting company, but I've moved more and more towards the business development side because uh, it seems that a lot of people want to build floating developments with special regulations and even without. So I, I cater uh, these needs, especially in Latin America, which is where I'm from. So. so so uh, uh, we are putting a lot of uh, uh, wood on the fire, but we are smart people. It's uh, not a problem for sure. Our listeners uh, won't mind. Um, so we went from special economic zones that enable uh, a given jurisdiction to experiment and then draw the right conclusions, hopefully. And, and now you are introducing the issue of these potentially being floating. Why is, it, is that an advantage? Uh, rather than uh, just a headache? Well, so it started the other way around. Ten years ago, there was a group of people at the Seasteading Institute who saw international waters as a way 
to create communities that had private governments that people could voluntarily attach to. Just like Joe was saying, uh, people can register their business in Dubai. They choose to do that because it has favorable regulations. Well, the idea of seasteading was that people could ascribe to different governance service providers, not just a commercial call, but also legal services and protection and things like that. And that was 10 years ago. And research showed that building a floating community in international waters, it's really very challenging from the legal point of view. So the strategy that the Institute took was, okay, let's just start instead of international waters, let's just partner with uh, coastal nations and do and build a floating project in the territorial waters. And why floating in international waters? Well, the idea was that if you could float your house around, governments would have an incentive of performing better because if they didn't, then people just take their house and float it somewhere else. Uh, in reality, there's the, the bigger you go, the more difficult it is to implement this type of dynamic geography. Uh, but that's how the project in French Polynesia uh, emerged, by searching for a coastal nation that would be interested in building floating developments, in this case, because of its sea level rise issues. And with the CIFIA, did you already um, decide where uh, you would uh, ideally start? Uh, what would be the most welcoming uh, nation state that is ready to take advantage of uh, what could happen? Well, there's actually many places that are looking at floating developments. Just today, I found out that Dubai learned that land reclamation is kind of problematic, and now they are moving to floating islands. But I am looking at different, me and my team, I work with uh, the architects from the Netherlands, Blue21.nl Blue is their website. And uh, we are exploring different locations that instead of focusing, starting with the governance, focus on the business case. So we're looking at first the business case, and then we look at the regulatory framework that can enable it. So, uh, well, yeah, somewhere there near those bounds. For example- uh, So, yeah. so uh, what you are saying is that uh, this was a very ambitious uh, engineering project, but uh, the long-term viability is not uh, yet uh, assured while uh, putting something uh, uh, on on the sea that is floating, if those seas are potentially raising in their level, the floating thing will just keep floating on top. Exactly. Even, when, even when potentially the palms will be uh, like uh, Atlantis underwater. Exactly. So the, this project is, is really cool, but it requires a lot of money to maintain it. But with floating, you have to spend less money in maintenance. Also, the, the deeper the water, then uh, the cheaper it is. But going back to what Joe was saying about uh, people voluntarily deciding to go to a place with regulations that are favorable, what we are looking right now in CIFIA is what business cases could really benefit from having a location that is on the water. So for example, there's many blue economy and especially blue tech companies, blue tech hubs, that work with underwater drones for doing water quality testing and uh, also a lot of although this is not my favorite at all because i'm vegan aquaculture and things like that so 
Yeah, and if you, on top of the floating aspect with a competitive advantage for businesses uh, to be on the water, you put a regulatory framework that attracts companies in this specific industry that you want to focus on, then what you can end up with is something like what Joe was saying, a project like Dubai that despite its small size, has managed to create a and concentrate a lot of economic wealth. So uh, thank you very much, Natalie. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Joe, uh, in the introduction, I mentioned uh, Startup Societies Foundation and Nuance Network. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one is a nonprofit, what, uh, the other is a for-profit. Uh, what is the relationship and what is the difference? Sure. So uh, Startup Societies, the, the nonprofit, the goal was um, that we saw a bunch of these projects in the space, especially a lot of the innovative ones, but they kept making the same mistakes. Um, and they didn't know that there, there were examples to draw from. Uh, they also didn't know there was a whole network of, of organizations that were working on precisely the same goal. So uh, what we decided was that we wanted to create a, a nonprofit network that would connect everyone together and share best practices to make that happen. And initiatives that we do to uh, drive precisely that is we do obviously a lot of popular content in terms of blogs, podcasts. Uh, we also did a lot of, uh, of, of trade show conferences, including the virtual conference that we had fairly recently. Um, and uh, uh, one of our more recent things is we opened up the only academic journal uh, 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 regarding special jurisdiction governments. The journal is called the Journal of Special Jurisdictions. Um, we also uh, published a 600-page how-to manual on how to make special jurisdictions and startup societies based on best practices and includes template legislation, template concession agreements, pro formas, really nitty-gritty stuff. Um, and so combining all these things together, we have a lot of best practices for everyone. So that's the description of sorry, uh, the, the, the guide that you mentioned. Is this one, uh, uh, Founding Startup Societies, this, uh, this book? Yes, that's it. Co-written by uh, our, our chairman, Mark Frazier and I. Okay, okay, wonderful. Um, uh, so, yes, please go ahead. Uh, I, I see this is uh, the Journal of Special Jurisdictions. Uh, this is the, uh, uh, the, 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 the scientific uh, uh, publication. Uh, is it uh, uh, um, an open uh, publication? Uh, yes. Okay, okay. Wonderful. Anyone can submit a paper. You don't have to pay anything at all. And you can submit. And I think you, you'll, your uh, uh, listeners will actually like this particular issue. It's about special jurisdictions and non-territorial governance. And there's a lot of it uh, regarding blockchain technology and crypto democracy, uh, open source legal systems, etc. So I think that might be something that your listeners would be very interested in. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. So yeah, let's let's put more on the fire. That's right. <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, what you are saying is is exciting, but uh, uh, I uh, believe that yeah. uh, even though there is a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm and there are hundreds of uh, zones or more, um, in in some way there is a self limiting uh, factor uh, given that it is linked to the land. Right, and there is only so much land available until we uh, colonize the solar system. But even then, it will be a. Natalie makes more of it, but yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So, so we can we can build the, uh, uh, you know, take all the wasted uh, matter in Jupiter and uh, Saturn, and then build a wonderful uh, 
colonies uh, out of uh, out of that and 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 that will be cool but until we we get there um to design um new ways of belonging to some experiment that doesn't uh, depend on the exclusive physical location mm -hmm. uh, is uh, less uh, limiting. Actually, there is no up, upper bound because I could belong to two or 10 or 100 different special economic zones, uh, each of them different and each of them competing for my talent, for my attention, uh, for my my enthusiasm, right? Yeah, I think you're. Oh, the, oh go ahead, Ali. I I was just gonna say that you are the right person to answer this question with your recent about two months two months research on e residence programs for special economic zones and other types of uh, digital zone systems. Sure. No, I can definitely talk about e-residency. I do want to make a quick point because you, you showed the Wikipedia of Georgism. I do want to say, and Mark Fraser actually writes quite a bit about this, and we wrote a blog post for, for way back. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, comparisons to startup societies to private Georgism. That uh, So most startup societies are on a land lease model, meaning that you have a private organization that has a like a 100-year lease or what have you, or it freeholds the land and then leases that out to developers and sub-developers and people underneath it. And people have often said that um, the, 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 the ground leases, the ensuing ground leases are very similar to a, a land value taxation system. So it's completely congruent with the idea of Georgism. In fact, I, I considered myself a geo-libertarian at, at a certain point or a Georgist in my earlier years. Um, and it was just nice that somehow it kind of coincided um, on, on the technological component, um, jurisdictional arbitrage traditionally, meaning that going to a different legal system to enjoy its benefits or streamline procedures, um, traditionally has only been bestowed by people who physically relocate to those areas. Um, that has changed for a while. I mean, the most basic example that a lot of people know is registering a company in a different jurisdiction that you don't live. Uh, a lot of people do that with Delaware corporations or setting up a Cayman Island bank account, uh, what have you. Um, but recently, the digital element of it has really come to the fold, and it's uh, with the pioneering work of Estonia and the e-residency system. And they get to enjoy the, the, the uh, regulatory framework of, uh, of, uh, of Estonia. It's relatively flat tax uh, uh, procedures and also just streamlined procedures. And what this has opened up the door for is the idea that special jurisdictions have the ability um, to um, provide jurisdictional arbitrage as a service, not just to people that physically relocate to the zone, but also by providing an online platform that allows people to register businesses, register a corporation there, uh, pay taxes, uh, uh, distribute shares, and enjoy the regulatory and legal code and uh, resolve disputes digitally, but based on the jurisdictional authority of the special zone. And uh, and uh, Natalie said that you just completed a, a, a study, a comparative study of uh, different e-residency uh, programs. Um, what are your conclusions? Uh, is there a best one, and uh, should uh, I immediately apply? I'm already a, a, an Estonian e-resident. <laughs> oh, Joe has a better version of it. Yeah. It, it, it's not so much an academic comparative study, it's more like market research because of a, so you asked me to compare 
uh, SSF to Nuance. So Nuance, what it does is it provides early stage policy implementation for really innovative zones and also technology to create e-residency and e-governance for the zones. Um, and we create that type of e-residency. So we have to like sort of map out in the pro so, forma. So this study and its conclusions are a product that Nuance provides to its clients. Yeah, so uh, a couple of places. Uh, so one one such project that I can talk about right now um, in, in broad terms is that we're working with a Native American tribe to create an e-residency system uh, based on the legal framework that they would create. Very, very interesting. Uh, so one of the, the, the things that uh, is fascinating is that uh, as, uh, you know, as you're talking, I am uh, Googling and pulling in uh, links, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to pull in links uh, uh, regarding jurisdictional arbitrage. And I chose not to because all of the links concern multinationals. But the point is that uh, uh, the effect of uh, all of this innovation is, as always, you know, whether we are talking about uh, the steam engine or mobile phones or, or advanced computers, uh, uh, the opportunity is for the democratization of the uh, product or the service or the process that used to be available only for a very select, exclusive audience, but now it is available to anybody. Uh, if you are an Indian coder, you can be uh, applying the jurisdictional arbitrage that uh, the Estonian e-residency makes available to you, opening a business that has immediate ability to trade with 500 million European Union uh, 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 residents. So that is so extremely powerful. I, I, I absolutely love that thought, and I want to give an analogy. I mean, obviously, a lot of people in the space like to make startup, uh, like a startup or computer analogies, and the perfect one is uh, a computer or an I or a, a smartphone. Uh, before cell phones or computers were purely the realm of the rich and they were really really expensive uh likewise jurisdictional arbitrage right now is pretty much in the realm of the rich and multinationals or it's increasingly not obviously but certainly in the past and the point of that as a market mechanism is, is is you is you create a high price point and you introduce other people into the market and what that did in the realm of, of cell phones and computers is that it brought more home computers and cheaper computers and reduced the price over time. What we kind of hope to do by helping form the marketplace of entrepreneurs in governance is to provide uh, lower cost services to people to partake in jurisdictional arbitrage and have better governance without having to be a multinational or be incredibly rich and to the point where uh, uh, competitive governance like having a cell phone in your pocket is commonplace. And that means that people have to provide or, or governments or, or, or companies that are providing government services provide the best service for you and don't just take advantage of your money or your freedom or, or, or equity or what have you. Um, now, an important um, concept uh, when we talk about disruptive innovation uh, is uh, that uh, the uh, incumbents will... Uh, resist as much as they can uh, if they realize what is going on. And, you know, a Kodak uh, didn't and the Nokia didn't. Uh, but, for example, the U.S. Uh, financial services industry very much did and has been successfully lobbying for favorable legislation that would keep blockchain innovation uh, at bay 
so that their uh, ridiculous uh, practices uh, of, I don't know, uh, a two, three percent uh, tax on every financial transaction, because you are doing it with a 70 year old infrastructure called a credit card, would stay in place. Um, and and uh, that kind of immune system, if you uh, raise the level of, of abstraction and you talk about nation states, uh, becomes uh, even more dangerous because, of course, they can kill you legally. Uh, and uh, and um, that was part of uh, uh, the, the plot of uh, the transhumanist uh, wager from uh, Zoltan Ishtan a few years ago. I am not going to spoil the, the book if uh, someone wants uh, to pick it up and, and, and read it. But uh, uh, the protagonist establishes a, a, a floating uh, um, hub for advanced uh, scientific experiments. Uh, and um, a, a lot of nation states in the world that don't, uh, don't like that. Um, and, and I believe that it is what is happening uh, in the USA that is one of the few countries that has um, uh, uh, legislation for universal taxation based on your citizenship rather than on your place of residency. Uh, at the cost of renouncing U.S. citizenship has been increasing dramatically, uh, as well as the time it takes. So if we project this out in time, um, then what could happen, and whether it will or not, we'll see, but what could happen is that it becomes, to be a U.S. citizen becomes a kind of vassalage on planet Earth where it doesn't matter where you live, more and more people will not be able to afford to stop paying taxes to the U.S. because it will cost more to, to, to not be a citizen. And yeah. maybe it will take a lifetime to stop being a citizen. And then if you, have the, uh, the, if you happen to be born a U.S. citizen, that will be it. You will be until the, you die. Yeah, it's 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 a problem. First, I'd like to address uh, the first concern that you had that governments will try to stomp out incumbents. Um, so that could definitely be a worry, especially as the movement grows. But uh, one thing to note is they've already opened Pandora's box. You know, there's 5,400 around the world. They've been in existence since 1945, and they've grown increasingly in regulations. I mean, in uh, regulatory power and legal power, um, and they make a dominant. Are becoming a more dominant part about the economy. So it's it's increasingly hard for them to do that, especially since it's an international market for zones. If, if one jurisdiction closes it, closes it, another one would benefit from it. And that's precisely the reason why there's no recorded case of a, a host jurisdiction getting rid of or expropriating a special economic zone to date. It's because of the spillover effects and the impact on the economy are so great. Another thing that we recommend in the book um, is, uh, you know, revenue sharing with with local governments to make sure that they have a very direct uh, economic uh, incentive to maintain it and to grow it. Um, so um, if, if, if developers move forward with that in mind, they can do fairly well. Um, in terms of U.S. vassalage, um, that is something that um, is, uh, is a little bit perturbing. Um, I, I would say, though, it's one of the reasons why we're moving into special zones within the United States, especially as the economy in the United States continues to falter, uh, both relative to its standing and also nominally. 
um, it's going to become increasingly important. And a lot of people in the United States are, are continually rethinking institutions, especially in the wake of all of this. Um, so we're working on zones there. We've even partnered with a, a U.S. venture firm um, as a venture partner to select special economic zone uh, projects across the world. Um, they're forming an SEZ fund specifically for this, and one of the first projects working with the Native Tribe for specifically that. And and is that Patrice Fund? No, uh, this is uh, this is Stat Zero. Okay, uh, is there is there uh, any um, relationship with Patrice Fund? So uh, uh, Patry, he's on. Uh, he's the chairman of the board of the Star Society's Foundation, um, and uh, the re um, and the relationship between Stat Zero and and Pronomos, there isn't really right now. We're still forming the fund, but it, it, Patry is focusing on accelerator type investments right now. Uh, we'd be looking for sort of like Series A. So it, it, it's sort of like the relationship between, uh, let's say like, this isn't exactly a fair analogy because of it, it's putting some sort of hierarchy, but like Y Combinator versus Andreessen Horowitz. Um, I, I, that's a really bad analogy because of, we're not even formed yet. So I don't like that, but kind of get the idea. All right, all right, very good. And 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 good luck, you know, forming a fund is, uh, is a big endeavor. Uh, so uh, I hope uh, you will be very, very successful. Um, yeah, for the venture partners, we're not forming the fund, but yes, yes. Uh, 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 okay, okay. Um, uh, so when uh, we look at the the tools that uh, um, that uh, special economic zones uh, employ, these are tools of policy and and regulations. And just as from mere uh, uh, developing desktop and the mobile apps, uh, now we realize that entire industries can be thought of as technologies themselves. And we talk about fintech, mm -hmm. uh, where banks are in panic because, for example, the EU said, well, if banks are technologies, then why don't we impose on banks the type of interoperability that portable document formats um, uh, provided to users of computers? And, and uh, it took a while, but today uh, it is required by law in the EU that if you open a, an account in a neobank, like, for example, N26, and you happen to have a, an account in a traditional bank like HSBC or another, then HSBC has to be able to allow you to consolidate under a single user interface uh, the information about your various accounts. And it is far from functioning still, even if it is a requirement, because banks are very low, very slow. But the fact that uh, the, the, the regulator has been able to understand what are the consequences of thinking about banks as platforms is by itself uh, very, very interesting. So if we make a further step, then what we can talk about is regulatory technology, RECTAC, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, um, apply the type of thinking uh, which you also mentioned is contained in the book in terms of best practices and, and, and recommendations uh, of how to set up a, a, a startup society, 
but it also should be something that uh, is maybe not at uh, uh, on github but but maybe it would be right if i want to if i want to do uh, an e residency program then there is no reason why i shouldn't be able to fork the github code that allows me to to do that uh marrying uh, the things that the best can do and then adding my own special sauce that will make it even better. Totally. Uh, no, 100%. I mean, that's that's something that we like to do with New Haunts. I mean, that's what we're doing with New Haunts. We do reg tech and setting up corporations and facilitating working with banks that are registering um, on, on tribal lands, for instance. Um, also, uh, you, you mentioned, well, there shouldn't be legal or regulatory work on, on GitHub. Well, we actually already do through the Startup Society Foundation. Um, we have... Uh, ULEX, an open source legal system created by the academic director of our research arm, the Institute for Competitive Governance. He created ULEX, an open source legal system based on private sources of best practice law from all around the world. Um, and he put it all up on GitHub. And there's already been a couple of forks and additions to all of that. Um, so you can just fork that. It's, 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 it's mostly uh, a legal uh, uh, software, not so much software software as computer software, though there is, we're working on that as well. Um, but the principle remains, you can take this legal system, you can add additions to it, or you can have a different form of substantive law or different procedural rule fork that, and that's your ULEX 3.0 or whatever you want to call it. Um, and we're increasingly moving to that space where coders and regulators and, and lawyers are sort of merging into one, into forming the governance as a service industry. And, uh, and what should I look for on GitHub? So, uh, ULEX, uh, ULEX, uh, so let's see, ULEX GitHub, and ULEX is spelled U-L-E-X. Perfect. Yep. There's uh, also a paper on it in the journal? Yes. Oh, okay. So, ULEX open source lexonomicon, I'll put that in the private yep. chat. Found it, found it, sharing it, there you go. Um, so, uh, Natalie, um, your uh, C... Um, uh, CFIA, uh, which is a wonderful uh, word. Uh, congratulations for coming up with it. Uh, is is uh, uh, new and and exciting. Um, and uh, and what are your your next uh, steps uh, with it? Uh, what uh, what are your next challenges and next uh, objectives? So it's new. And it's very exciting and we are doing some progress. Uh, our medium-term goal is to set up a floating blue hub for blue tech and blue economy startups and companies so that we can propel the entire ecosystem in the Latin American coastal location. Uh, we're looking at a few, but there's one that is a bit more advanced uh, Yeah, in the location where, where we locate. And we are taking some steps to get there. So this year, we are going to start with a climaton. Uh, so like a hackathon, but for ideas about how to tackle climate change, but specifically related to maritime technologies, shipping industry, ports, uh, floating technologies, uh, underwater data collection systems, and everything maritime slash floating. So we are starting with a hackathon this year. Uh, last, like a couple of weeks ago, I signed an MOU with Climate Kick, which is a program by the European Union that it's actually the largest green accelerator in the world. 
So they, we are doing the Climaton with Climate Kick, exactly. Uh, in November this year, actually in the city where I, I am from and where Joe and I live in Barranquilla, Colombia. Uh, then next year, we are gonna launch the accelerator program for blue technologies here in Barranquilla. And our aim is to attract maritime companies and startups and investors and uh, NGOs and education programs to focus on maritime technologies. We're in conversations with the local government. Uh, everything seems to be going well. They are very receptive to the idea. Sorry, that's my timer take, telling me to take a break if you heard it. Um, it's a bit loud sometimes. So uh, yeah, our, our goal uh, is to kick started from here because as I said earlier, it's better if you begin where you are from because you're familiar with the local culture, the local environment, you know, the people, all that. So, and then we hope that by 2022, we have our floating blue hub. So that's uh, as far as I can give away right now at this point, but- oh, Of course, of course. It's going, it's going cool. Very, uh, very, very exciting and, and, and congratulations. Um, and what, when you started your PhD, would you have uh, imagined that you would uh, shift so rapidly into uh, becoming an entrepreneur? Yes, but I didn't know I was going to end up working on floating, actually, because, uh, yeah, my hope was to get the PhD and then very romantically do something with it. Uh, that's not necessarily the path that you... But, but, but uh, more traditionally, people who get a PhD imagine themselves to become a, a researcher or, or, or a member of the faculty of an academic institution, right? Yes. In, order to get, in order to be an entrepreneur, you don't need a PhD. No, you don't need a PhD, but I did want to... Uh, so in Colombia, I think it has to do specific with the Colombian context. Colombia, because of uh, the, how the economy and the, the cultural setting is, like Joe was saying, is not a place where you can say easily, I'm going to be a football player. And then you do great, although there's great football players here. But you cannot say, I'm going to work as a, I don't know, I'm going to be a librarian and, and have a, a good, good living standard. Uh, that, right so education is here the main way to succeed to be honest uh, there's also uh, yeah if you are self-made educate you have to be educated here so it was my way to 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 get a better place in life and yeah i i i I wasn't thinking necessarily to stay in academia. And about two years into a PhD, I couldn't wait to get out of academia. And I, ha I finished a PhD, but now I am not in academia, but I am the uh, editor of the Journal of Special Jurisdictions. But it's different because it's more a managerial role. You don't have to think every single word you say. But uh, yeah, no, but when I started my PhD, I was looking to, uh, I was very, half percent was of, of me, half, half of me was an anarchist. The other one wanted simply 
a system of decision making that allowed people more direct inputs into the outcome. So I started looking at digital democracy. I'm a bit embarrassed of saying this actually. And digital ways of, of creating new bills and new regulations. So I looked at the case of Finland, for example, with its online uh, digital system for creating bills where people, 6,000 people in a Google Doc, for example, can draft a, a bill and then it passes through Congress. I thought that was great before I knew that it has to pass through Congress. So it's not really that direct democracy what you have there. So then I realized that if we re really want to create changes through deep changes with the way decisions are made and to stop the hierarchical form of decision making that we have in our representative democratic systems, we have to change the relation we have with the territory. That's how I got to seasteading and to other types of uh, political ways of organizing that change the dynamic you have with the territory. So long story short, mm, I wasn't thinking of staying in academia. I wasn't thinking of leaving. I did knew I was going to do something afterwards that didn't, wasn't going to have to do with academia. Um, my experience in, in um, uh, analyzing and implementing uh, accelerating technologies uh, uh, brought me to a realization many years ago uh, that uh, uh, decentralization would be a very natural outcome exactly because innovation can only happen at the edges as uh, the pressure of innovation increases uh, the ability of the center to adopt uh, innovation goes down so uh, the periphery uh, becomes uh, stronger and stronger and this is happening in many different uh, areas independently from each other uh, solar in uh, energy, um, uh, 3D printing and digital manufacturing, hydroponics and aquaculture, uh, synthetic meat, personalized health, and so on and so forth. That is one of the reasons why for me, when, uh, when Bitcoin emerged, uh, it wasn't very much a surprise. It was more like a, a welcome fulfillment of a necess necessary uh, solution to a, a very clear uh, uh, issue. And uh, I uh, publicized and, uh, this uh, in, in, in my writings uh, uh, around uh, Network Society, uh, including the Network Society Manifesto and the fundamental thesis of the Network Society that states how um, social innovation uh, is enabled by technology and can only be sustainable if uh, uh, sufficiently advanced technologies are uh, available at, at any given point. And today we are really uh, in a point where uh, it is becoming more and more uh, evident uh, uh, to a larger and larger number of people that uh, the nation state has kind of run its course. It has been a wonderful innovation two, three hundred years ago, uh, and uh, it has uh, been very successful to the point where it occupied uh, basically all the landmass available except Antarctica. Uh, and uh, uh, however, uh, whether we are talking about climate change or we are talking about uh, the uh, emancipation and empowerment of billions of people who, who are struggling to get out of uh, uh, their um, lack uh, of opportunity 
just because they were born at some given geography uh, or uh, the pandemic, which is the latest crisis that uh, nation states have proven to be completely unable to properly handle, yeah. uh, there is a need for something new to emerge. Yeah. Except that if uh, we were happily using the blunt tools of wars and revolutions um, previously, uh, today with nuclear uh, arsenals in the thousands, it would be probably a, a stupid uh, way of uh, resolving increasing tensions uh, in order to uh, clean the slate and, 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 and start anew. So yeah. the challenge really is that whatever new uh, socioeconomic organization we build based on uh, a new generation of technologies, it must be in parallel yes. with the existing one. And I... so I think that is uh, a, an interesting uh, uh, conclusion that we can come to if we, if we must um, around special economic zones and startup societies. They can become the anchors uh, on which the scaffolding on which we can build the, the novel structures uh, while uh, nation states decide whether they want to adapt uh, to, to new needs or just uh, peacefully uh, dissolve themselves uh, and, and become part of history. Yes, I'm very glad you touched that point. Uh, my background is actually in complexity science. So I see the world through networks and topologies and different types of interactions among multiple levels and diversity of components. That, those are the lenses through which I see the world. And through those same lenses, I saw that representative democratic systems are hierarchical, are pyramidal, are centralized. And that those uh, types of systems, the, the information processing dynamics that these type of systems have, doesn't really match the network, multi-level, multi-scalar, interactive, bottom-up, also top-down, and just very diverse way of processing information in human social systems. So that mismatch causes huge tensions. So for example, how do you really actually control 40 million people or three, 300 million people with, with one single hub? It's just not possible. You're going to have a bunch of conflicts there. And so my approach to governance was we have to change the topology of governance. We have to move to a topology or to a network structure that makes more sense with the type of structure that human societies have. And I completely agree with what you said. The emergence of parallel, multiple, decentralized, distributed, uh, simultaneous, special economic zones and startup societies all around the world is the result of that uh, slow and sometimes uh, sudden appearance of new ways for human societies to organize themselves in the transition towards ways of politically organizing that uh, match better the topology of human social systems. So uh, the, the, the last provocation that I want to close with 
is an open question. I formulated uh, about a year ago a new paradigm that looks at uh, an increasing rate of acceleration uh, where technological change uh, uh, is not uh, um, merely accelerating, like, for example, Moore's law uh, in, uh, in computing, but uh, uh, like a rocket, as it is taking off, uh, its acceleration itself is increasing. And we can already op observe this uh, super exponential rate in many uh, technologies like uh, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, DNA sequencing, and, and so on. And, and the question is, if we already have a hard time adapt, adapting uh, to an exponential mindset, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the disruption, the destruction even, uh, of, of uh, jolting technologies, as I call them, could go beyond the limits of adaptability of both individual humans as well as human societies. And uh, I don't have a good uh, answer to that conundrum as of yet, but I think uh, we don't have a lot of time to come up with an answer because these forces are already at play. Yeah, I, I would recommend you to look at Stuart Kaufman and his work on uh, trying to find the fourth law of thermodynamics. And he has this, uh, he didn't really find it, but he came to the following statement. Uh, he was talking about dissipative structures, but we can talk about life. Life and things should evolve as fast as they can. That's it. Not faster, not slower, just as fast as they can. And I think, yeah, but there, there's not just one answer. But that's okay. I, I, like I, that <laughs> I love that. I love that. And uh, and I met uh, Stuart, uh, and I and I love his book, uh, rediscovering the the sacred, and yeah. uh, uh, Ilya Prigogine, who started the studies on dissipative systems, of course. Uh, uh, is is a huge uh, influence in in current thinking around uh, complexity and and how complexity can arise uh, in 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 open uh, systems, uh, which also transitions into political thinking uh, through uh, uh, the Open Societies uh, Foundation and their their work. But we will have to go back and discuss this, uh, Joseph and Natalie, uh, in uh, another episode of uh, searching for the question live uh, because um even though this is uh, exciting and and very very stimulating uh, this episode is over thank you very much uh, for both of you to be to be part of the show of course now we're done talking about the change now let's go make it thank you for yeah. having us on the show david we have rather than rather than just uh, talk uh, we have to do don't argue build uh, like uh, your uh, your slogan uh, says <laughs> yeah. uh, all right natalie and uh, and joseph thank you very much for uh, being with us today my thank pleasure you. thank you everyone so uh, uh thank you very much for uh joining uh, searching for the question uh, live uh, you can uh, uh look up uh, all the links uh, that uh, we collected uh, by uh, going to uh, the YouTube uh, recording on the same URL that you watched uh, the, the live stream, 
uh, it will take us just a, a few hours maybe to, to post it uh, in the show uh, description. And then you will be able and uh, uh, really act on the uh, various uh, points that uh, we raised uh, by going as deep and as uh, broad as, as you want. Uh, and um, if you like uh, what you hear, uh, you are welcome to become a, a supporter, a fan, uh, a sponsor, a benefactor at various uh, levels on patreon.com uh, slash David Orban. And uh, I will uh, see you at the next episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live. <laughs>